not a DC-based podcast unless we're talking about the fallout around the DNC hack, and we'll talk about all of it from another wild week in Washington. In our interview this week, we talked to Threat Quotient's John Zupak on how he's seen his startup grow over the past few years and what he sees for the future. Better late than never, Securiosity for Monday, July 23rd. Let's do it. Welcome everyone to episode two. Greg Otto here with my co-host Jen O'Daniel. Jen, leave it to us to launch a podcast roughly 90 minutes before the Justice Department drops one of the biggest legal cases related to cybersecurity in American history. And then the president goes to war with his own intelligence leadership over the course of the next week. DOJ should really check in with us before they file indictments and what is going to happen in the next 90 minutes. <laughs> this story, of course, hasn't receded from the collective consciousness since the last election and the indictment will keep us busy for months to come. So let's get to the news and talk all about it. During that God-smacking press conference in Helsinki, Russian President Vladimir Putin offered to host American law enforcement officials who are currently investigating foreign meddling in U.S. elections. Trump, who seemed to approve of the idea but called it an incredible offer, has already received widespread backlash for his comments. During the appearance, Trump publicly doubted the findings of a now-famous 2017 intelligence community assessment that stated Russian intelligence had helped get him elected through a targeted hacking and propaganda campaign aimed at U.S. citizens. Greg, is this offer as crazy as it sounds? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's wild. Toward the end of the week, and we'll get into a lot of the news that came from this event, the Aspen Security Festival, the Security Conference, or whatever you want to call it, uh, was, out, was held out in Colorado. And a lot of these types of arrangements that Putin and Trump have kicked around were talked about on stage and then completely left on stage. And it's not just a partisan crowd. The intelligence community is full of people that tend to be the quote-unquote law and order Republican side of the fence. And when they are openly laughing at things like this, that tends to show you where the mindset of the intelligence community falls when it comes to offers like this. This is not going to happen. Ever, ever, ever. You and I have a better chance of being a part of Trump's cabinet in the next three (laughs) weeks than we do of the intelligence community working with its Russian counterparts to come up with cybersecurity laws or some sort of cybersecurity agreement where everybody's on the same page. It's not going to happen. 90-day mass exit to the private (laughs) sector. So, speaking of that, the FBI's task force to prevent foreign meddling in U.S. elections lost a key cyber-savvy official last month when Jeffrey Tricoli left to join Charles Schwab. FBI Director Christopher Wray last year announced that this task force, which is an effort to prevent a repeat of the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign when the Russians unleashed an info operation and ran riot on social media, the loss of Tricoli and his nearly two decades of cyber intelligence experience could be a blow for the FBI task force ahead of the midterm elections this fall. That wasn't enough. It became public Thursday at the Aspen Security Festival that three more top FBI officials working on cybersecurity cases are leaving for the private sector. Jen, as a more casual observer of this, knowing what we know now and with this news, do you think any agency, let alone the FBI, can contain these propaganda efforts tied to manipulating our elections? So I actually spoke about this topic earlier this year on a South by Southwest panel called War Games from Battlefield to Ballot Box. But do I think federal agencies contain propaganda? Of course not. 
I mean, look, we have a president who appears to have taken Russia's side over intelligence community. So we're probably going to see a 90-day mass exit from public to private sectors, if it's anything like the private sector. Um, and so unless Facebook and Twitter are going to ban IP addresses from outside the United States, I just don't think it's possible. That, that 90-day mass exodus that you're talking about, I think that's really interesting to watch because... I mean, this goes back to the conversations that were being held once Trump came into office and sort of took up this belligerent course of action against the intelligence community. And it, it, it gets to be a moral dilemma. It's do you stick around and, and do your job and keep your head down? Or do you become so disgusted with your boss saying, you know what, you guys aren't up to it. Um, I, I don't believe you. I believe the the adversary and what he tells me. Do you just get so disgusted with that that you leave office? It's 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 been a question around since Trump took office, and it's starting to I think weigh on people. The more and more he sides with Putin, it's just never been as bad as it is right now. And I just don't I don't see how you put up with that much. In other personnel news, the White House has officially made Grant Schneider the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Schneider had been serving as federal CISO in an acting basis, one of his many hats he had worn over a decades-long career in federal IT. Schneider will maintain his recently announced role as head of the federal vulnerability disclosure process, a National Security Council spokesperson confirmed to CyberScoop. Greg, what do you think about Schneider's move here? I think, so going back to the conversation that we were just having, uh, Grant has been around and has seen everything that we've seen evolve and happen, and he's kept his head down, and he's worked very hard to be a cybersecurity leader, especially during a time when cybersecurity leaders are in short supply or being drummed out of government. Um, I know Grant has done a lot of work with that vulnerability disclosure process that we were talking about, um, and that has been a big thing going back even into the Obama administration, that the government needs to be a little bit more transparent on how many zero days they sit on, and when they find those zero days, whether they need to talk to the private sector about that. Um, I think that's one thing that Grant has concentrated on consistently, and it's something where the conversation keeps growing and keeps evolving, and he's a good person to have there. As far as everything else is going on in the National Security Council, cybersecurity-wise, I don't know if that could be any one person could handle all that, whether it's Grant or not. So he's got a mountain ahead of him, and uh, best of luck to him conquering that mountain. I think a good man is in place there, but, I mean, yeah, best of luck to you in dealing with the mountains of work that you have, buddy. Well, let's hope he can. So in other um, Russian news, <laughs> more of it, with the Russian government's cyber attacks on the DNC dominating the headlines, it's easy to forget that the same group of Russian hackers have allegedly posed as ISIS sympathizers to harass U.S. military families. But two senators, Cory Gardner and Ron Wyden, don't want the Department of Justice to forget that. The senators wrote to Attorney General Jeff Sessions last week asking the department to investigate the apparent false flag operations and to hold any perpetrators accountable. The senators continued, if left unchecked, such operations would threaten the personal liberty, financial security, mental health, and morale of our military families. Greg, do you think the DOJ or any government agency can combat that? Uh, I think they're trying to, uh, but I, I, I think those efforts are stifled on a number of 
On a number of planes, I mean, look, the, the DOJ just put out their cyber task force report at Aspen earlier this week, which talked a lot about combating things just like this. However, we know that there is a severe cybersecurity leadership shortage, which we have been talking about. People are leaving that are very well versed in how to stop things like this, and they'd rather go to the private sector where they're not having their browbeat constantly by their leadership. But also, you know, you're dealing with uh, a leadership in the form of people sitting on the National Security Council and the president himself that don't seem to think this is a problem. How do you combat that? How do you combat that when you continuously go to your boss and say, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem, there's all available evidence that this is a problem, and your boss goes, I'd, I'd rather concentrate on somebody, something else, or no, I don't care. Like, so can they combat it? Even if they were staffed up to the gills with experts on this, I think it would still be a fight because propaganda is very, very powerful. And it gets to the private sector side of things too. Is Facebook caring about it? Is Twitter caring about it? Uh, their, their efforts are, you know, just as paltry as what you've seen on the public sector side. So can they combat it? Sure. Are they? No, not at all. Did they give us anything about what Fancy Bear might do next? Um, I think you've seen a little bit of talk that they are starting to ramp up efforts geared toward the 2018 election. We've seen some DDoS attacks on some networks related to elections. Uh, We talked about that on a previous podcast, and that's going to continue into the election season. The The more and more we head into the fall, I think you're going to see more and more efforts ramp up. Um, There are people, and it's not just DOJ and the FBI. There's DHS people that are doing this. There's other intelligence apparatuses that can help combat this. But I, you know, I think we're behind the eight ball on this due to the fact that we're seeing people at the highest level of government combat the efforts that are going on at the agency level. So it's a mess. And we all know this. So More Russia, more Russia, more Russia. Dan Coates, the director of National Intelligence, recently warned of constant cyber threats against U.S. critical infrastructure. The director cautioned against getting tunnel vision about election security, uh, given the diverse set of threats the country faces to the energy, aviation, manufacturing, and other sectors. Uh, At a recent talk, he named several foreign powers as looming threats in cyberspace, but of course, singled out Russia, saying that government actors are targeting businesses and agencies across sectors. So, Jen... Which one of these critical infrastructure sectors do you think deserves more attention, election security or critical infrastructure stuff like the power grid or the water supply? So all of our attention should be on the critical infrastructure. We can solve the election stuff um, by ignoring all the propaganda. Let's get our news from the Wall Street Journal, from the New York Times, from Scoop News Group. Let's stop looking at Thank Facebook you for, that plug for the there. news, please. Um, our brightest security professionals should be looking at, at critical infrastructure. I mean, we spoke with Run Safe Security last week, and we talked about that. And, you know, imagine if Loudoun Water is compromised, which uh, stops us from being able to cool the data centers, right? So 70% of our traffic is coming through data centers that would be gone just by hacking into the water. 
Yeah, in one and county. that's you know, and it's funny that you say that because I don't think a lot of people think about critical infrastructure attacks on no one does. on the water. Well, they don't think about it in terms of how it could affect all the technology that right. we have. Like it's not just as simple as plugging you know your laptop in and hoping that the the Wi-Fi connection works every day. You're you're right. I I, I haven't thought about that either. The cooling that goes into those data centers. That's a big deal. And I know they have backups upon backups upon backups. I've done data center tours too. But, you know, that starts to put stress on uh, the nation's, you know, energy facilities and the power grid and everything like that. Like, it's one of those things where, yes, you set up for a stress test, but you don't want to go through that stress test. Of course not. Absolutely not. Like, you would rather keep things humming the way that they are. So, you, you know, you, you bring up a, a really, really good point that there are factors to this in terms of what could happen in a critical infrastructure attack that I don't think lawmakers are thinking about. I mean, I really think, let's face it, our generation, the generation after us, they can't handle not having things like power and running water, right? They just, they're not going to be able to adapt to right. um, that at all. Right. So... In non-Russian hacking news, uh, about a dozen former officials are warning that the 2020 census could be a target for hackers and are asking the Census Bureau to be more open about how they plan to protect it. Security is especially important for the upcoming census because it will be the first that will allow people to respond online. An open letter outs the concern, and it's signed by cybersecurity and intelligence-focused Obama administration officials like Michael Daniel, Matthew Olson, and Chris Painter. The authors want the Bureau and the Commerce Department to shed light on what protocols will be used to restrict data access and secure the sensitive information that the American populace will submit. So, Jen, how confident are you in the Census Bureau's ability to protect this information? Not confident at all. I mean, it's just... It'll be their first time out at this, um, and quite frankly, the right people probably aren't in place to protect this. They should be looking to the private sector to figure this out. Um, maybe they are, um, but certainly from what I've read, they're, they're not. I'm just not very confident in it. But also, again, you know, I think once again, we're focused on things that aren't as important as critical infrastructure. Well, I think with this, I think why it's so important is... This reminds me of the OPM breach, where the OPM breach, it was data points on some 20 million people that, you know, reportedly went to China and allowed them to build out their intelligence database. What could be the one bigger thing in terms of a data breach that could damage this country? Um, probably the process of collecting data points on every American in the population. That's well, why sure. I think this is so important and i think that is why you're seeing former intelligence officials be like you guys got to make sure that this is fine Do, are they sitting on their laurels at the census bureau and just going whatever we have is fine no but uh, there is something to be tackled there if you're going to allow people to respond online and if you're going to put census takers out into the field with their own devices as well. The own device part of this, which is something that hasn't been talked about enough, I think is very, very worrisome because you're basically trusting on the security of everybody's devices that you have as volunteers when it comes to collecting that information. That's bad. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, you should at least be letting them sign up 
to an encrypted portal to transport that data in and you need to be careful whether you want them are to they not installing on. third-party apps on there that protect the data i'm sure that they are trying to do that i need to go back and look through the contracting language in order to figure that out um but i'm not sure if that is going to be in place. I know the bring your own device part of the Census Bureau or of the Census Collection is a very big part of the 2020 Census and it's also a very, very big cybersecurity hole. We talk about the weakest link in the chain. That to me is a very, very weak link. And that should be something that the security people at the Census Bureau and the Department of Commerce need to be thinking of the more we move forward. In private sector news, Amazon and Google face sharp questions from a bipartisan pair of U.S. senators over the tech giant's decision to ban domain fronting, a technique used to circumvent censorship and surveillance around the world. Senators Juan Wyden and Marco Rubio sent a letter Tuesday to Google CEO Larry Page and Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, urging the tech giants to reconsider decisions by both companies in April to ban domain fronting, given the harm it will do to a global internet freedom and the risk it will pose upon human rights activists, journalists, and others who rely on the internet freedom tools, the senators wrote. So what is this all about, and why is it we are getting some bipartisan efforts on this issue? So domain fronting allows people that live in under repressive regimes and think Southeast Asia like Vietnam and China and where there we have the Great Firewall and the government wants people to see only what they want them to see on the Internet. Um, domain fronting allows people to get around that. A little bit and with China ramping up toward 5g and coming online and being a a big world power and dictating the way the internet norms are uh, China has turned around to these companies over the past few months and have been like you need to stop domain fronting if you want to do business in this company or I'm sorry if you want to do business in this country um, so Amazon and Google and other companies have sort of cat to the Chinese and said okay fine We'll, we'll stop doing that. Um, that. It's been a long thing within Western diplomacy to try to let the dissemination of free information be a, a global asset for everybody, especially in China. We've not liked the fact that they've had the Great Firewall in China for some time now. Right. So having both bipartisan senators sort of apply pressure to Amazon and Google shows there's a united front on something for once coming from Capitol Hill. We want people to get around this censorship and have that, you know, free dissemination of information. So it's really sure. interesting that, that we've seen this. But they're private sector companies, and I think we can only expect them to try to make as much money as possible. I don't think we can expect them to solve the world's problems. Right, and and that's, the, that's a really interesting thing, especially I think about Google where Google's motto for so long has been, don't be evil. Well, <laughs> you, you, if you talk about putting up domain fronting and then putting it down when China says you're not going to get a dollar from us unless you put this down, you get to talk about that, that moral part of it. And you're right. Companies shouldn't be relied upon to be a moral center. However, when you're Google and you say, don't be evil, you are yourself, you know, putting yourself out there you as are. a moral center. You are. So, I, I know that they've recently sort of taken that uh, slogan out of, like, company documents, yeah. and they've sort of moved away from that. But 
it gets to a greater conversation that we're having around with the Googles and the Facebooks and these big tech giants and whether, you know, whether that Silicon Valley hive mind that it was under the Obama administration, that the two were linked and their politics matched up. We're not exactly seeing that anymore. We're seeing them. It's just, it's whether left wing, right wing, it's just the drive for money. That's, yeah. That is what it is. Largest bottom line possible. So, speaking of money, into the startup world, McLean, Virginia-based cybersecurity company Verodin, or Verodin, apologies if I'm not getting that right, announced that it was raising $21 million in a Series B funding. The company's security instrumentation platform continuously tests the security of a customer's network by acting as an attacker, essentially automating red teaming. The platform tries to exploit vulnerabilities and reports back to the customer security controls and whether things have worked. So also this week, a company in New York, CyberMDX, uh, raised $10 million in Series A funding. They're a medical cybersecurity startup, and the company supplies a platform that provides customers with visibility of their medical devices. Now they connect to the network. They look for threats and the vulnerabilities associated with them. Hospitals are flooded with these medical devices, and the medical devices often have weak security and then you have things that are searchable on the open web, and then you have things like ransomware attacks. So such conditions contributed to the spread of WannaCry in 2017, and CyberMDX investors say that the existing security solutions aren't cut out to defend the devices that are on the networks run by medical companies. So Jen, which one of these companies sounds more interesting to you? So they're both interesting. So CyberMDX solves a really sexy security threat, right? So, I mean, there was even a Grey's Anatomy TV show about it last year where we saw sort of a hospital get taken down. And, and look, hospitals have hundreds of devices exposed on the internet. Um, you know, the firmware is probably not updated, the patches aren't made, and someone's got to monitor this stuff. And so we've probably seen um, 10 or 15 of these companies pop up. Um, you know, they're raising 10 million bucks, so they're probably not very far along. But, you know, really interesting. At the end of the day, they could be credited with saving lives. Um, so the other one, I'm always a fan of sort of the, the local startup made good. Um, again, really interesting. It's potentially making us more secure, potentially saving uh, money, you know, growing that bottom line for companies. But, you know, neither of these companies really solves what I think are the biggest two cybersecurity issues around companies, which is, all the small, medium-sized vendors, they're just not getting protected. The money's being sent on big enterprises, and then they're getting breached because of the small guys. Um, and then human error, right? I mean, most of our data breaches are human error, um, and Veridin just isn't going to be able to pick that up. Interesting, interesting stuff. Okay, so with all of that, it, we could have gone another 30, 45 minutes on all of the news this week, but we definitely want to get you to our interview with Threat Quotient CEO John Supak. But before we get to that, we wanted to make sure you guys come check us out in October at DC Cyber Talks. Presented by CyberScoop, DC Cyber Talks is a TED like conference dedicated to addressing cybersecurity priorities, trends, innovations, and unprecedented security challenges ahead. For one day, a thousand of the most influential cyber leaders from tech and government will gather in Washington, D.C. to hear the industry's brightest speakers discuss the most critical issues in cybersecurity. It takes place Thursday, October 18th, 2018 at the Andrew Mellon Auditorium in Washington, D.C. For more information, check out dccybertalks.com. Okay, here we are on Securiosity talking with John Zupak, the CEO of Threat Quotient. 
John, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I know threat quotient is big in the threat intelligence space, and I know that that can be a nebulous term. So kind of talk to me about how you view what threat intelligence is and how can it help companies and organizations secure themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Threat intelligence, there's a there's a positive and both a positive and a negative to the to the phrase threat intelligence or the words threat intelligence. Uh, the positive is it's hot, it's current, there's a lot going on, which is opportunities for companies like ours. The negative is everybody says they're a threat intelligence something, right? So the challenge is how do you, how do you distinguish what you are? And then uh, once you can begin to communicate that, uh, how do you kind of rise above the noise and above the rest? So I like to first uh, distinguish threat intelligence uh, from the perspective of what we are not. We are not a threat intelligence feed. Uh, So threat quotient uh, doesn't employ researchers. We don't create our own original content. There are lots of threat intelligence feed providers that are out there, some that have been there for many years. Uh, Commercial examples would be early uh, providers like Eyesight, which is now part of FireEye, folks like CrowdStrike. Uh, There are also commercial feeds that are open source feeds. There are... uh, uh, sharing feeds that come from the ISACs. So there's a variety of, of data that users use. So we're not in that world. What we provide or have built is a threat intelligence platform, which is a consumer of these feeds. So if you can think of, uh, the best way to describe it is think of, of the problem a consumer of the feed may have. You have lots of data, a big data problem. How do I make relevance? How do I pull the sort of the needle out of the haystack? and provide uh, relevance over the feeds or the data that's really, really important to me. So we've built a threat and tell platform or a tip, which a lot of the uh, folks in the industry refer to it as, uh, which not only uh, allows us to consume that data, but we further provide capabilities such as workbench capabilities so that the users of the data have the ability to not only interact with that data, but also utilize the tools that they use in their normally daily work, right? And so we want to give them a mechanism, a platform, that allows them to bring the data in, to work with that data. I'd like to refer to it as sort of curation of the data and turn that raw data into usable threat intelligence. And the last mile of kind of this this equation is what do you do with this prioritized threat intelligence now that you've been able to sort of pull out the highest priority items, the things that matter to you. And that is the concept of operationalizing that data. Take it and make use of it within those applications that you use within your environment. So let's dive into that a little bit more because, you know, it is just data until humans turn it into intelligence. So how do you take data and turn it into actionable intelligence inside an organization? So you, you, you provide uh, a level of, uh, I, I, again, I, I describe it as relevance for that data. So what data is important to me? If I have uh, some uh, ideas about the kind of actors that might target my organization, about campaigns, Uh, that might be typically run against my organization, about the types of tactics that are used, whether it's things like a spear phishing campaign is a normal tactic. Now, if I can bring this into a central location, this universe of data, 
and now can begin to interact with the applications that already exist in my environment. A sim is a classic example. Have I ever seen evidence of any of these things in my environment? Have the log data that exists in my sim show that I've actually had some level of activity uh, related to those things that I care about? Suddenly I've got bits of data, both external data as well as internal data, that I can begin to bring together in sort of one view, right? Uh, I then can provide prioritization on that information. So we like to generally refer to that as scoring, but in the, in the case of Threat Quotient, what we do is we, we provide the abilities for the users to be able to control that scoring. So if I have something that is really important to me because I think I may be susceptible, and I've actually seen it in my environment. This is the highest priority item. If any other activity comes in that's related to this, if we see it, I want it to have the highest score possible and I want that brought to my attention immediately. So we give them the abilities to interact with the data but also control the mechanisms that then controls the data that comes into what we refer to as our threat library. So think of that library as, at least in our case, as not just a, a universe of everything, but a library that shapes and becomes contextually relevant for the things that are really, really important to me. So what types of organizations should be using this? Is it everybody? The, the, there's two answers to that. The simplest answer is, I mean, there's a little bit of a question, you know, who is your target user and or buyer? And uh, I, I would generally answer that with a, if an organization has their own security people, their personnel, uh, or if in fact they have their own security ops center, their own SOC. So if they've got people and they have a SOC, they have a potential use case for our technology. Uh, if they are consuming threat data or this so-called threat intelligence in any capacity, then there's absolutely value in using the ThreatQ platform. So uh, think of uh, enterprises. I would call them large enterprises, but certainly uh, governmental uh, institutions. Uh, so, you know, this is something that's applicable to both the private sector and the public sector. Now, there's a dynamic going on in our, in our industry. This is not new, but it is new in the threat intelligence world, and that is this, this notion that uh, there still are large enterprises that may not have the capacity, the resources, the people, the talent to be able to do all of the security functions. And uh, what do they often do? They rely on managed service providers, MSSPs, right. to provide that service. So uh, we are fortunate that we have a long history of working with these kind of organizations. And uh, what has developed is uh, the emergence of yet a new service offering through MSSPs to their customers in the world of threat intelligence. So they're providing both managed and monitored capabilities to add threat intelligence services to you know, uh, uh, other portfolios of things that they offer to the customers. So back to your question, who is, who is the consumer or the user of this? Certainly enterprises, people with staff, but organizations that may be consumers of MSSPs are absolutely a user of this kind of capability. 
So talk to me a little bit about the genesis of your company, because there is so much out there in terms of open source intelligence and the different feeds. So I was going to ask you, what's the advantage of paying for a threat intelligence feed? But it sounds like you have a product <laughs> that, that gives people an advantage for not paying for a certain amount of feeds. If you're curating everything and sort of aggregating everything that's out there, you've, you've kind of hit upon an opportunity that the market has given you. So I would love to hear about the genesis of what brought this idea, you know, to bear. Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of uh, uh, sort of threads that I can I can go down. If we go back to the earliest days of the company, the company was founded by Wayne Chang and Ryan Trost. Both both individuals were uh, SOC operators at General Dynamics. Okay. So these guys worked in uh, some of the most sophisticated SOCs in the world, and they lived the problem of trying to make determinations about who are the actors that are attacking me and what are the profile of the kind of campaigns that we experience. And in those days, they may or may not have had commercial feeds, but that, that was the early days of the commercial providers providing threat intelligence data feeds to organizations. So they lived the problem of, I've got, I've got to worry about the bad guy, I've got to make use of all the data that I can make use of. But boy, this is really painful for me. I'm using spreadsheets. I'm collaborating by email or phone call. There is no uh, centralized way to be able to manage this process. Not only is it inefficient, but uh, it is uh, uh, the efficacy of the results really, really lack. Right. So they live, live, live the problem, which led them to found the company uh, in 2014. Now I got involved, uh, after, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old startup guy and have done a number of, of, of cyber startups, uh, here in the DC area. And, uh, the one previous to this was a pretty successful company called Sourcefire, which we built up over the years and eventually, uh, sold to Cisco and really what, what is the foundational kind of security business for, for Cisco these okay. days. Uh, I was introduced to the company in 2015, and uh, what I recognized was there was actually another thing happening in the industry. So our founders were operators that lived the problem. I started to recognize, as had others, that the industry was shifting from a mode of completely focused on uh, protect and defend, build the biggest walls, into a model of, well, we know we're going to get compromised, it's inevitable. You can't build walls big enough to keep folks out. The evidence is, you know, it's on the front pages. Uh, I was going to say, it seems day. to me that's the model that's starting to come. The assumed exactly, reach model. It's exactly right. So, uh, so I think the measure uh, is increasingly becoming uh, not can I protect everything, but how quickly can I detect, and what is my mechanism for responding. And that's really the measure, right? So this, way, this new wave of, of detect and respond uh, started to occur. And uh, it became clear to me that a big part of the equation of that is the use of this threat intelligence. In the same way, in a physical sense, that the threat apparatuses of places like the NSA and the CIA provide intel that they then feed to the physical defenses, you know, your military, your police forces, homeland security, that same concept holds for cyber. And so not only is there a recognition that we've got operational inefficiencies, but there's this wave 
and use of threat data and threat intelligence that's happening. There's a new model for how people are being measured, which is an opportunity because it's really hard to make systems automate a lot of the analytics that go into this process. It's a big problem. What's next for this market? Yeah, so that is a, that's a, a loaded question, and that's what makes our, our business so interesting. Uh, this industry, and I, I, I'm going to call it generally uh, threat intelligence, but I'm going to bleed into a slightly new concept, which is I'm going to give it a broad uh, description, but I'm going to call it security uh, operations, okay. SOC management, right? And so uh, there is there is what I believe to be uh, developing a recognition that SOCs in and of themselves are not necessarily efficient, right? And so you still have a lot of uh, difficulties of, of folks uh, being able to collaborate, especially if they're in different geographic locations. Sometimes they speak different languages, which creates challenges. Uh, but the notion of collaborating amongst teams of individuals uh, really is very, very difficult problem in the SOC. Uh, the other thing is, is that there oftentimes is no sort of common truth that is up to date for something that's being investigated. So if I'm a junior analyst, I'm working in a silo when I'm part of the problem. Okay. If I'm a malware hunter, my job is to use things like uh, my sandboxes to blow up files and provide that data back, right? If I'm an incident response handler, I might be interacting with and having as, as my pane of glass my case management or my ticketing system, or I might be a SIM guy. All of these components have really valuable pieces of solving problems, whether you're responding to an incident or whether you're trying to get ahead of something that you care about or might be concerned could be a problem for your organization, right? And so there's a lot of inefficiencies in the SOC. There's a lack of collaboration that occurs oftentimes, and there is siloed activity. All this screams of, wow, there's an opportunity for uh, companies like ours that if we can help weave together some of these processes and weave together some of these technologies, we actually can provide some really, really useful capabilities. And so an example would be we recently launched at this year's RSA show a, a second product called ThreatQ Investigations. And when you think about what, what it is, it really is all about providing a collaboration platform for the SOC. What it does is it leverages the underlying threat intelligence capability. So we've built a world-class tip which solves many of the problems of curating threat data and making that threat data usable and then allowing uh, the system to automatically interact with the application. So that's in place. What we've done with this second layer, ThreatQ Investigations, is provide what uh, we describe as a cyber situation room. So think about the White House situation room. It's a place where smart minds get together, they bring information together, and they make decisions, right? And then they go forth and execute those decisions. We have a similar concept which provides a visualization model for a SOC. It allows me as an operator to invite others into this visual room we call a cyber situation room. 
it allows us to take advantage of all of the elements of an investigation, threat data, uh, operations, which are really tools that they might be using in their daily work, and it allows us to interact with all of the applications that are there. So imagine I've got an incident response uh, event that's occurred. I bring in the top four people. I open up a new cyber room. We bring all of the elements in. And as I give you a task, you're the malware engineer, go blow up this suspicious file, tell me what you find. When you subscribe that data back into the room, everybody is updated. So it's a place where we can provide really, really powerful SOC collaboration and coordination of activities. Uh, this is just one of the sort of uh, technologies that's emerging in this world. And there's a, a lot of gray lines right now in this thing called SOC operations. You can think of threat intelligence as a component of it, operations which are tools is a component of it. Uh, there's a, you know, a, a buzzy thing uh, called orchestration and automation, right. which is a big component of it. But you can't forget the huge investments that companies have made in things like ticketing and SIMs. So all of these components are part of this thing that's, that's emerging in front of us called security operations. So do you see then a SOC sort of working in a more distributed manner across an enterprise, or do you see it really coming together and, and being sort of more cohesive? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you uh, an answer that's not an answer. The, the answer is, is really both. Okay. And what I mean by that is if you've got the power to help organizations collaborate, they can and should and will be a distributed organization, right? And there's power in that. There's around-the-clock power and regionalized uh, power and talents. Uh, but the real goal is to provide that collaboration capability so SOCs and teams can work closer together. And what are you really, what's the problem you're trying to solve? You're really trying to, 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 to lower this time to detection, this so-called mean time to detection, and you're trying to shorten the time to response. That's really what it's all about. So you've got an amazing company culture. We've got about 200 investments with CIT Gap Funds and Mach 37. Yours is the most interesting. Tell us a little bit about sort of your thought process in that. You've got a band. You've got a whiskey tasting. You've got beer <laughs> tastings. You've got all kinds of things. Puppets. Tell us about it. Yeah, we've got we got a lot of stuff going on, and uh, you know it. It really, I think it start. It always starts with the with the people, right? And uh, you know, when you talk to investors or companies that have been been successful, uh, it, I, I'm not the first guy to say the team is everything. Mm -hmm. So it starts with the team. Uh, I am the one thing that I am very uh, insistent and protective about is making sure that we've, as, as much as we can, that we've got a good cultural connection and fit for the people that we bring in to the organization. And there's a bunch that goes into that. It's, it's not a science. It's absolutely an art. Uh, I've got a, a bit of an unfair advantage in that a lot of the people that are in the company are people that we've worked with. So when you've, you've sort of been in the battles and the trenches, uh, you know who you work well with and who you like, and uh, it doesn't mean that we're exclusive of others, but we do try to kind of bring people in that we think have that good cultural fit. 
And look, this is hard stuff we do, right? And so we want to we, we want to inject a little bit of fun and personality, and and it's it's really not a uh, it's not a thought out thing that we do relative to culture. A lot of these things develop. So I'll give you an example. We have a Thirsty Thursday. Don't get don't don't misread this. We're not we're not you know uh, super drunk every Thursday. But what we learned is. <laughs> One of our accountants, uh, Mike Pack, is, and I don't know the technical phrase for it, but he is the equivalent of a sommelier for beer. He's, he's okay. a blogger. He has tens of thousands of followers and literally is an expert in beer. And he, We started a beer tasting thing Thursday afternoons. We call it Thirsty Thursday. And we'll, we'll line up eight or ten beers and we'll taste them and rate them. And I've learned that uh, I, I can't stand sours. It doesn't matter. Oh, sours are good. Give yeah, them a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's a it's a polarizing uh, it's a polarizing thing. But you know that's an example of one of the things that we've done. You mentioned our puppets. Uh, the puppets were not uh, not a master plan, but they turned out to be this fiendish sort They're of thing. Awesome. They are awesome. Uh, we love the puppets, uh, and this is how it started in the earliest days of the company. Uh, one of my executives was in the field most of the time, and I hold a staff meeting every Tuesday. Sounds kind of formal for a startup, but it you know things are moving so fast we do this. And he had missed meeting after meeting, and I just put my my fist on the table, and uh, I said, "Look, we need to get a, a little Marty in here." This was a uh, Marty Weber who was with us, and uh, you know some of our folks went and ran with it, and what they brought back was a a foot, a, a, a puppet, which is about a foot tall, of of Marty. But it wasn't just Marty. It was Marty. Marty liked to wear green sweaters in the winter. So, so we're talking full ventriloquist, full ventriloquist likeness here. Absolutely. And uh, you know, as another example, Marty eats one cookie every day at lunch, and so of course the puppet has to have a cookie. So we brought the puppet in, not knowing how that was gonna work and it was such it was so wildly uh, uh, embraced by the staff it then turned into about every quarter we would stack up the next puppet of the exec team so we, we do have a full lineup of executive puppets in the office uh, the company band is my my kind of thing I don't claim uh, any great uh, talents in this area but it's fun and have a lot of interest and have done it in prior places. And so, yeah, we put together a company band. And I, I, I have to tell you, uh, and we, we actually were pretty good. Our last all-company event, uh, we were surprisingly not too bad. That's not the, the same as saying good. I'm sorry. Are you the singer? Uh, I am one of the singers. Okay. But, you know, we seem to bring more talent into the company uh, and so we've got, you know, new singers that have joined. And uh, I was super excited. We just hired a, a, a new individual to join our organization in our QA group. And one of the cultural things we do is uh, our mascot is a rhino. Okay. And so you'll see rhinos everywhere in the, in the company. Yes, you will. And uh, every employee that comes gets a, gets a little rhino stuffed animal, really fluffy. And, uh, you know, usually their kids love them. And we asked them to send in a picture of them and the rhino when they joined the company so we can share it with everybody. I like it sort of as a, a historical memorial. 
But uh, this latest uh, QA individual, I was so excited. She didn't know we had a band, but her picture was showing her with a saxophone. And all of a sudden, my wheels are turning. We, we now have brass in the band. <laughs> so the band is going to be uh, bigger and better this, this next time around. But we do a lot of that kind of stuff, and it's just sort of, it's developed, but, uh, you know, it's, it's in part one of the reasons we, we were named a best places to work company here most recently with the Washington Business Journal. And uh, of all the awards we've gotten, I'm, I think I'm almost most proud of that because I can't buy it and I can't twist people's arms. You know, we get awarded based upon what the employees say about it. So on to curiosity, we end our interviews with one random question for you with the band uh, and the music things going on at Threat Quotient. What's your favorite album of all time? Favorite album. It's got to be, uh, I'm going to get crunchy on you, but it's going to be uh, ACDC, We're Going to Go Back in Black. That's not crunchy. It's, I thought you were going to tell you. I hear crunchy, I think fish or <laughs> primus or something like that. No, no, ACDC, I'm an old guy. I mean, I'm, a, that's, I'm old school that's crunchy. legendary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll go with ACDC because I think every track on that album is is perfect. Rumor has it, though, that you blast rap music throughout the office during the day. There's a little bit of that going on from time to time. (laughs) We'll have to check it out sometime. John, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks again to John for talking to us about what he's been through with Red Quotient and what the future looks like moving forward. That's it for this week, and we'll be back shortly, short turnaround time. We'll try to get to you guys later at the end of the week. But before we go, Jen and I want to let everybody know that we're going to be in Las Vegas in a few weeks for the Black Hat DEFCON B-Sides Extravaganza. So if you want to get involved with this program, do reach out to us via your favorite medium, email, social, text message, carrier pigeon, whatever. I don't see too many carrier pigeons coming, but hey, whatever. <laughs> That'd be awesome. How, how, however you want to get involved with us, please let us know. We will be out there during all the fun in a few weeks for all of those security conferences. So we would love to hang out. Until next week, everyone, stay curious. Bye. Bye.